This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Tom Kerridge is one of the nation's best-loved chefs, but as a child, he had ambitions to be an actor, once appearing in a 1991 Miss Marple Christmas special. Alas, a career on screen wasn't to be, and aged 18, he went to catering college. He went on to climb the ranks of his profession before becoming the chef and joint proprietor, with his wife Beth, of The Hand and Flowers in Marlowe, a place which bears the notable distinction of being Britain's only pub with two Michelin stars. Still, Kerridge claims he is not a Michelin star kind of guy. And it's true that his food is as unpretentious and comforting as the man himself. A roasted hog is his signature dish. In his 20s and 30s, he worked hard and partied harder, sometimes sinking up to 15 pints a night. His preferred hangover cure was... Two pints of coffee, six Nurofen, and then I ate lots of carbs. He put on weight, peaking at 30 stone. But after turning 40 and the birth of his son, Kerridge decided to change his life. Overnight, he cut out all carbs, alcohol and sugar apart from fruit. He started swimming and lifting weights, eventually losing 11 stone. His transformation was so impressive that it inspired a series of best-selling books, the latest of which... Lose Weight and Get Fit, is out on the very day that we're recording this interview. Happy publication day, Tom Kerridge. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) It's a delight to have you on the podcast. You're my first Michelin-starred chef. Maybe the first of many. Maybe everyone will follow now. (laughs) Is it fair to say, I mean, I mentioned there in the introduction that you would sink sort of 15 pints a night, and then when you decided to give that up, you did it overnight. Are you a man of extremes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, I am. I like it. It's one of those, and you don't, I don't think you realize it or recognize it when you're younger and you're doing stuff and you're getting on with life. But I think 
Yeah, 100%. The, more, the older you get, the more you can reflect on your personality and you realise the personality and the person that you've become and you've built. But yes, everything I do, I do 100%. Like, I, there is no... If I make my mind up to do something, then that's what I do. And then if I do it, I'm going to do it bigger than not everybody else. It's not a competition with anybody, but it's, it's always a competition with myself. I, if I can do that, then I can do it better and I can do it stronger. I can do it more. I can do it faster. I can do it bigger. I can do it... So... Yes, everything is pretty extreme in my life, yeah. I want to come back to that. I should just say that we're recording in your publisher's office in Bloomsbury and there might be the occasional sound of a reception buzzer and a phone call being taken. But is it, as I put it, you literally did decide overnight to give up all of that stuff? Yeah, well, kind of. I stopped overnight, but I didn't decide to. I worked my way up to I knew it was coming. I had to make that decision. And you, I think when it was such a huge life decision... I'd worked my way into a space where I felt that I needed... To, I don't regret where I got for a single minute. I don't... Because the excess of being a successful chef... And I think you, when you come to interview loads more chefs, as it, you know, from now on, you'll begin to recognise there's a lot of traits that are very similar with them, that we are all creatures of excess and extreme. And some of us vent and release that pressure of being a chef in lots of different ways some of it will be through the gym some guys will do it through running some guys will do it through drink some guys will do it through drugs some guys will do it through you know there's lots of different I mean the the industry is full of people that work to excess and have to have an excessive release form so running a business owning a business is pressure enough as it is. I mean, anyone who will tell you who runs their own business, no matter what it is, you're under pressure for seven days a week. There's no such thing as a day off when you own your own business, even if you're not necessarily, if you own a shop and it's not open, it doesn't mean to say that you're not working and under pressure, you know, you're never away from it. So those pressures are huge. But then having those pressures and then pushing a kitchen and pushing a kitchen as hard as you can to get to a level of cooking is also very, very difficult, but amazing. It's incredible. You know, being a chef is phenomenal. I love, I suppose, it's the sort of thing that attracted me to it when I was 18 years old, the excessive lifestyle, the energy level, the excitement, the adrenaline that kitchens give you. They're amazing places to be if you're that sort of person. So having that release form, the harder I pushed, running a business, pushing it, pushing it to cook into two Michelin stars. I was cooking it to two Michelin stars. You drive it. That release was needed. So I don't regret being that person for a single minute. But there comes a point where I recognise that, okay, I've got to a level of cooking. The business has got to a point where I'm not comfortable with the business. I'm never happy with it, never 100% happy with it. But it got to a point where I go, okay, I really now need to make look at my life and I need to make a decision. And 40 years old is one of those points that everyone will talk about that you don't recognise it until you get there. But they are, it is an age of reflection. You do look at going, okay, what have I achieved? Where am I going? What have I done? What's the future? And you never really think about it. You hear it in your 20s and 30s and you think 40, whatever. And then actually when you get there, you go, okay, I really do have to make a decision. My knees hurt a bit more in the morning. My back aches. I wake up with a headache. I go, you know, just all those getting older things. But if you're doing things that are excessive and you're 30 stone and you massively drink heavily, hugely, every single day, there is a, you start to recognise that there may become a breaking point here. 
the drink was a habit and it's a very bad habit that I had and it's an issue. It's a problem. I don't drink. I can't drink. You know, I can't go near it. You know, I know it will escalate out of control. There's no such thing as a drink, you know, that doesn't exist in my head. I just don't understand it. Why would you just only have one? It just doesn't make sense to me. So I have to stop. It becomes nothing. It's all or nothing. Like everything in my life is all or nothing. But then I got to a point where I knew that was coming and I knew that was the only way that I could stop. I consider myself strong enough that I don't really need to speak to people I didn't need help. And I'm not stupid. You're 30 stone. You're surrounded by food. You drink loads. Of, I can see what I have to do to not be that person. So let's make that decision to not be that person. It took about three months of knowing that I was getting to that. It was January the 6th that I stopped drinking, 2013. And I went, OK, there's lots of things coming up here that throughout Christmas and you know, there were big parties with people and friends and there was a New Year's Eve that was probably the last New Year's Eve that I drank, which was amazing. You know, it was just up at Glen Eagles Hotel with friends and, and it was just everything about it was amazing. And I just knew that, you know, six days later, that would be it. I would not do it again. And it was, it got to the point where I recognised I had to stop, but it was a build-up. It was a three-month build-up of knowing that I'm going to stop. And then overnight, and then I didn't drink again. I did fall off the wagon probably three times in the first year, but then that was it. That, that was... So we're going to come back to drinking because it's one of your failures and I'm yeah. really glad that you've chosen to speak about it. But I wonder what it's like to lose the amount of weight that you lost. And I know it's not just about weight and your books make that very clear that it's actually lifestyle changes that you can make and accommodate into your everyday life. But your transformation has been so dramatic. And I wonder if you felt weird about it at all that visually you looked really different <laughs> no because if you're on a weight loss journey and a life-changing journey and you have to you have to be selfish there is a point of being selfish you have to make those decisions it's about you you know it's very easy if you worry about what anyone else will think or you worry about what you're going to look like or what like they're also ridiculous thoughts you have to just go now this is what I'm doing I'm becoming very selfish about this no I'm not going to go to the pub no I'm not going to go and meet my friends no I'm not going to go and do this because I can't be that person you have to make yourself a different mm. person so no I, I look back at it it's quite weird because we found some archive pictures the other day of an old magazine for it might have been a BBC Good Food magazine or something where we'd done some cooking and whatever. And it was in the early years of the Hand and Flowers, relatively early, when I was that size. And I showed a picture to my son and I went, who's that? He didn't recognise it. It took ages for him to work. Like he, he looked at it and it, you could see in his face, he's going, well, it looks like my dad, but it's like my dad massive. Like you could see it working out and he, and he went, dad? Like it was almost with a question. So it, I don't recognise really how different I look from that person to this one until you see archive pictures. But I think I'm no different inside. I'm a different person in terms of like, I'm not the party guy anymore. Like someone else can do that. But I'm still the same person. I still have the same excessive work ethic and the excessive life drive. And, the you know, I still, the lack of sleep and the energy spaces that I try to try and cram everything into the day as much as possible. I'm still the same person. So I don't, it's weird. I, I don't see the visual because I'm not looking at yeah. me. <laughs> so it's, did, did you worry about not being, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, the fun Tom, when you gave up drink? Yeah, 100% you do. 
And I think that's something that everybody else will, you know, who doesn't want to go on the journey, maybe everybody else that drinks a lot or and parties and plays and they're the fun, bubbly one and the, the one that's always up for the laugh. And, and they think if I'm not going to be that person, have I lost my personality? Mm. Of course you haven't lost your personality. You're just not that person. You can't be that person. You have to make that decision. Do you want to be that guy, that person for the rest of your life, which might not be that long, much longer? Or do you want to make a, a definitive change and change what you're going to do? And then... See, one of the biggest things is telling people around you, telling your friends, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm going to do. And then two of my biggest chef mates, both of them are two mission stars, Sat Baines and Claude Bozzi, who are incredible cooks and incredible friends and also like to party. The three of us had an amazing time. But when I said, listen, I can't drink anymore, it's not right, I can't do this... They were the most supportive. We had a big boys trip not long after I decided to not drink, made that decision. And they drank, of course, like, but they were so supportive of me and my decision and to not be that person. And that's why you have to tell people, if your friends are going, oh, go on, just one, that's not actually being a friend. And then you have to sit back and think of what's their psychology for that? Why are they asking you to do that? Are they asking you to do that because it makes them feel better about themselves because they feel a little bit guilty that they're drinking or they're eating excessively or they're doing whatever? You know, is it, well, if they're doing it, it's all okay. It justifies their... You need to surround yourself by people that are supportive. So when you make that decision, you know, and you cut people and things out of your life because they make you do bad stuff. And I'm quite lucky that it, mine was alcohol. I mean, it could have been drugs. It could have been like, and then, you know, if you think of the people that you could surround yourself by that encourage you to do things that aren't good for you, you have to make those decisions yourself. Your first failure is a failure at education yeah. at your GCSEs. And I wonder if you could take us back to childhood, Tom. What were you like as a kid? Bubbly, outgoing, I've always been comfortable in my own skin, no matter whether I was big. I was always, I was quite a big kid as well. I mean, I played sport. I loved playing rugby. I wasn't very good at it. I mean, I come from Gloucester. So everyone in Gloucester is like really good at rugby. That's it. You have to, that, you're really good at rugby. That's it. You're born in Gloucester. Like my best mate that I went to school with played professional, his old career for Gloucester. So I'm comparing myself to people that are, however, I wasn't very good at it, but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the social space of it. School was great. I grew up, as a single parent family, pretty much. My mum and dad split up when I was 11, but they weren't very much together before that anyway. My dad was very ill as well. He had MS. There was a fractious relationship. So I didn't really, neither myself or my brother grew up with a father figure. So there was, my mum provided everything for that. She was very good at taking us to the rugby matches or going to the, she was amazing. She became the all round complete parent for everything. But I'd always been comfortable in my own skin I would be happy you know and, and I went to school I didn't not I didn't hate school I actually quite enjoyed it I went to an all-boys comprehensive school in the middle of kind of like three estates in Gloucester so it was a bit my mum called it the school of life I mean it was a bit rough and tumble like but it was great I mean there was a lot of kids there from different backgrounds it was a big school there was like over I think it was about 1,200 pupils all boys all from estates, all for, like you can imagine the kind of place that it was, but it was brilliant. Like it was really good fun. There was always things going on, huge amount of sport, huge amount of banter, kids having a laugh. And also a lot of naughty boys there. Now I was always hanging around with the kind of like semi-cool naughty boys, but I wasn't the naughtiest and I wasn't the coolest. I was just kind of like one of those guys that hang around and was there. 
never really in trouble, but never excelling at anything. I never bought into the education system. I never bought into sitting down and reading books and writing about stuff. It just didn't work for me. It just didn't sit in my head as something that... I look back at it now and I think probably from an early age, it made me think that I couldn't see how that related to anything that I wanted to do in life. Because the only jobs that I could ever see people do where they sit down and write stuff are people that sit in an office. Like in 1984, you look at people who write stuff. I couldn't ever see myself wanting to be in a job where I have to wear a suit and sit in an office. I just, I couldn't relate to it at all. So education, I just switched off from. But I also didn't see myself being a builder or a carpenter or and I couldn't work out what it was I was going to do but I never feared that I wasn't going to be able to find something I always thought I'll be all right I'm not quite sure what it is I'm going to do but the education thing really didn't click in for me but I did love going to school I loved having a laugh I did love the social hanging around with the kids but I love going to school and then skiving off like go in sign a register and then go up the park and smoke cigarettes and just be a massive idiot and like that kind the of social stuff. aspect yeah. again yeah again hanging out and doing stuff but not writing and learning no 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 we're living in an era of information overload we've more knowledge than ever before but what do we do with it all notion is a place where any team can write plan organize and rediscover the joy of play it's a workspace designed not just for making progress but for getting inspired notion is the ai powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself meetings have summaries Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. What did your parents do? So my mum worked for the education department. She was a secretary at the education department. And then she also had a couple of jobs in the evening. She would work in a pub washing up as my mum and dad split up. My dad was a lecturer at the art college before he became very, very ill. So he was a graphic designer and a lecturer at the local art college. But they kind of split up and then he he stopped work. His illness was too big. And when they separated, it was... So they separated when I was 11 and then, yeah, so that was it. So we would probably see him maybe once a week on a Friday evening. We'd pop over there and go and see him. But as, as he got progressively worse, I mean, we still saw him. We still went over to see him. But it got to the point where he almost didn't recognise us and his illness became really bad. And he ended up, his last few years, were in a home where he was just bedridden. He was almost a non-human, which was really sad, really oh, sad. I'm so sorry. 
it's weird. I kind of grew up with it. So it's not, I mean, yeah, you look back at it and you go, yeah, it sounds like a really sad childhood, except it wasn't. It was an amazing childhood. Like me and my brother were relatively close. We're close now. We're very different characters. We're very different people, but we were always good friends. And when my mum and dad were together, my dad wasn't there very often. My dad was away being my dad, doing whatever he was doing. My mum was always the figurehead of the family for us as kids. So when my mum and dad split up, it didn't feel weird. It wasn't, it wasn't like taking 50% of something away because that person really wasn't there a lot in the first place. And then, yeah, it's very sad when you see somebody very ill, but it, there wasn't like necessarily a father-son connection there that became, that was broken so it, it's sad that someone's very ill and then they pass away but it wasn't as heart-wrenching a story as you could make it sound how old were you when your father died i was 18 okay yeah and by that stage you'd failed your gcses yeah pretty much i came away with i got four of them i got four gcses and i, I just wasn't interested in i couldn't be bothered to write things down read stuff i had no understand it I had no desire to go on to further education and don't get me wrong I get the reasoning now I look back at it and go okay so what you're trying to prove is that you can process information take it in and then repeat it and have an understanding of it and then maybe even put your own spin on it however at that point I had no understanding of why I need to learn about rock forms somewhere in Chile in a geography lesson I mean that is never going to affect anything that I'm going to do even though I didn't know what I was going to do I knew I wasn't going to be someone who goes to Chile and looks at rocks so it's kind of like you know physics the science of it all like languages just none of it made sense for me to what I was going to do. So I kind of almost switched off from it. And when it came to the exam days, I pretty much just turned up. Like I went there and I did them and then I went away again, not really worrying about what I was going to get. But I also didn't know what I was going to do. But I also wasn't worried, weirdly. Not once did I think, I've really got to get these exams. And not once did I think, if I don't get these exams, this is all over. I just knew I would be all right. I just knew something would find me or I'd find it. It's quite interesting, that, because it sounds like you didn't feel it was that much of a failure. It's not now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not now. It's not now. But at that point, because there were people that were getting great exam results yeah. and going on and doing A-levels and doing... And it felt like maybe that's what I should have been doing. Did you feel labelled? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I was lost. Between the ages of 16 and 18, completely, my mum calls them my dossiers, because I kind of, like, didn't... Do I was supposed to be on a YTS scheme that I kind of didn't bother going to either because that wasn't, none of it fitted because you couldn't claim benefits as a 16 year old. And I didn't know what job I wanted. I didn't go into higher education. So I was still trying to find myself about what I wanted to do and what I, where I wanted to go. Without the education, without the backup, without the, there was no definitive path of which way to head down. I kind of look back at it. It's funny because I spoke to my mum about it. My niece has just done her 11 plus or if that's what it's called now, I'm not really sure. Like, I when, did the 11 plus, yeah. yeah. yeah so, <laughs> We're the so, same generation. Yeah, so I did my 11 plus. I didn't know this, but I recognise it now and I look back at it and I go, you know, I know I'm not stupid. I know I have an understanding. I've, I've got a worldly understanding. I mean, I've won Celebrity Mastermind. I mean, I mean, come I mean, on. I mean, yeah. That's amazing. You know, Wait, yeah. what was your specialist subject? Oasis. The, oh, the, the, yeah, so Oasis. And then... 
which was all right. Like it, it wasn't that. It was the general knowledge that I smashed it on. That so was the bit. Of you. Oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> it was. It made up for all the lack of education because in that week I won Celebrity Mastermind and I got an honorary doctorate in philosophy from Gloucestershire College. So it was kind of like my mum suddenly became super proud. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> but I, the, the education thing was. An, I knew I wasn't stupid. So. The 11 plus, my niece has just taken it and she's done very well. And, and I was saying to my mum, oh, that was amazing. She's done, she's done great. That's fantastic. And she, and my mum said, oh, yeah, well, you passed it as well. What do you mean I passed my 11 plus? So I could, I could have gone to a, more of an academic driven education from a grammar school. I said to my mum, so I could have gone, I could have gone to Crypt, which was the school, the grammar school. And she went, oh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, you could have gone there. And then she, her follow-up sentence to that was, yeah, but you'd have never have coped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks, mum, thanks. And that's because my mindset wasn't one of, I want to sit in this classroom with a load of people and yeah. listen and learn. It just wasn't ever there. So... I think I could have that. I could have gone there if I had the right mindset to it. I could have gone there. I could have got GCSEs. I could have got A levels. I could have gone on to university. I know I could have because if I put my mind to something, I know I can do it. However, it's only if I want to, and I really couldn't be arsed to do it. That's so interesting that your desire is such a strong motivating force. Like if you desire something, you can do it like that. Yes. So what? brought you then to catering college had you always loved food i mean the 1980s were not a key food era no in this I'm, a, I'm a finder's crispy pancake <laughs> kind too. of guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. bird's eye potato waffles finder's crispy kiev. pancake yeah 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 tinned raviolis honestly that's the stuff yeah. that like yeah so that's what i grew up with that, that's the food that you know that those years of convenience food that I mean, a lot of my menus still now are based on a chicken Kiev, but we just do it really well, those sort of things. But it, it wasn't a desire of food. Actually, it wasn't the food that, I mean, I've always loved food, but it was the industry that I fell in love with. I mean, like you say, at the beginning bit, I was an actor. It, that kind of happened, not by accident, but it was something that I joined a youth theatre with my friend Neil my mum took us over to Cheltenham Everyman Theatre and it was amazing it was brilliant I'd always been comfortable in my own skin like I say so going out on stage or learning lines or it was great it was then that was the first real experience of actually hanging out with girls as well it was an all boys comprehensive school that I went to you know and it was quite alpha male there was always a fight so actually then going to a youth theatre and hanging out with girls was it was getting out into the world which was great you know, there were a lot of girls there from Cheltenham's Ladies' College. And it turns out that 16-year-old girls from Cheltenham Ladies' College quite like a couple of boys from an estate in Gloucester. You know, it's kind of like I, like the youth theatre was amazing. <laughs> but it was really good fun. An agent came to see somebody in a show and they really liked her and took her on. And would I go in? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'll go on the books. Sure, no problem. And then literally two weeks after that, I was filming that Christmas special in Miss Marple. It was kind of all a weird... It wasn't weird, but it was great. So I just said yes to it. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, why not? I mean, I'm not doing anything else. So let's just do it. But then the world, don't get me wrong, I think acting, I think movies, I think some films just blow you away and some performances are incredible. But I couldn't, as a career, I found it very weird for me as a personal choice to make money pretending to be somebody else. Like I see it as a, if it's your profession, I get it. But then for me, it was just like, this is, it's not for me it's this isn't my world it's not I'm not comfortable in this space this isn't I enjoyed like doing things like the practicality of doing stuff is really cool so all of a sudden I found myself going I'm actually doing stuff that isn't sat in a classroom or about 
learning. I'm learning things. I'm being with people. I'm understanding a process. Uh, that I really, really enjoyed. But I needed money. So I went into a kitchen as an 18-year-old. It wasn't to be a chef. It was to wash up. So I walked in the kitchen thinking, oh, well, I need to earn a bit of cash. I'll do this. And pretty much instantly, the space grabbed me. The people, the energy, the vibe. The, it wasn't about the food. It was about what's going on, what's happening, the noises from the kitchen, the sounds, the banter, the pretty waitresses, the, just all the things that... It's, it was life. It was really bubbly and active and great and good fun. And then when the chefs had finished, they'd clean down and then they'd all go for a beer and all this. I just thought, I want this life. This is amazing. This is brilliant. It's great. And, you know, and you're getting in at midnight, you know, and it's like, I've just finished work and all your mates are finishing work at five and then going, you know, it's like, that, that sounds fine, but it sounds so dull. Like all of a sudden it was something that was, this is really left field and a real sense of energy and people that you meet that work in the hospitality industry are brilliant. It is like, the best way I describe my kitchen or any kitchen that I've ever worked in is like being on a pirate ship. You know, it's relatively disciplined. There is a point of where they're going and what it's going to achieve, but the people are on it as such an eclectic mix from all over the world, from all sorts of different backgrounds, from all sorts. Of... So all of a sudden I come from this 1,200 all boys in a school that were pretty much all the same sort of background. All right, it was quite culturally diverse, but still the same sort of kids. To all of a sudden, different age groups, different people, different things. Like, for example, one of my head chefs that runs the coach for us is, you know, he's got a degree in forensic science. But then there's kids that are working there, some that completely flunked all of their, like, didn't even bother going to school. You know, I've worked with people that can't read and write in my time. So the, the whole energy level, but everyone's cooking for the same reason, or everyone's in that thing. So all of a sudden, this energy of this space grabbed me as an 18-year-old, and that was it. I knew then, this is where I'm going. This is what I want to be in. Did I want to be a chef? Did I want to work in the hotel as a hotelier? Did I want to be a restaurant manager? I didn't really know until probably about two or three months of being there. And then it was, no, this is the kitchen. This is the activity. This is the beating heart of pretty much every F&B operation, food and beverage operation. It's, this is where it is. This is the coolest bit. This You'd become captain of your own pirate ship. I love it. Uh, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after Catering College, you got into the industry and you are now phenomenally successful, but it wasn't always like that. And your second failure is failure at business. You opened a bar in Marlow about nine or ten years ago yeah. and it didn't succeed. So tell us about that and why you chose it. I mean, business was always very, very difficult. You, you go from being a chef and then opening your own business and it's very... You go from being an employee where you know how much you earn and you know how much you can pay rent or what you can do, whatever, like to be an employer and you have no recollection of how many you're going to get. You've got no idea what's coming, what's around the corner. What's it? You, you are in fully in charge of your own destiny. And that is quite a, it's frightening and daunting, and, but it's also amazing. I mean, again, you're, you're in charge of what's going on. Like you can either make money, you can lose money. You have to have a sense of ownership and credibility in why you're doing it. Everything that we always do is always built on the foundation of people, relationships. None of it is to do with making profit. 
businesses have to make profit. People yeah. think profit is a dirty word. Profit is not a dirty word. You have to make profit so that you can reinvest. That's it. Things break. Stuff needs doing. Things need redecorating. People need pay rises and jobs. You need expansion and growth. And you, you can't just sit stagnant and still. You need to make a profit. Profit is not a bad thing. Excessive profit being made at the expense of the standard or the reason why you operate in the first place isn't good. But to make profit with the heart and values that you open up with in the first place, you're never going to make absolute loads of money from being in the hospitality industry. But if you can set your stall out with credibility and make sure that people get paid properly and everything, and you have a standard that's very good, people become they tie into the business and you know they grow with it and become part of it and then you can adapt on that but in 2008 i mean the recession hit it was very bad we made a decision that we wanted to grow and how we i mean i went from being a chef to being a chef baker i mean we we needed to make me and beth had no money the business is on its knee yeah beth's my wife yeah so we, we 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 had no money the business was just about operating we were trying to keep it as busy as possible but I would work on a Friday morning. I would come into work at 7, 7.30 and work all the way through till Friday night. Then Friday night, about midnight, the kitchen would be cleaned down. Then I would set up and I'd make bread all night long, probably about 300 loaves. And then Beth would come in at about 8 o'clock on the Saturday morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock Saturday morning, set up a little stall in Marlow High Street, sell all the bread. And then I, I, like, I would then just work all from, because it's 7.30, 8 o'clock Saturday morning. So then I'd work all the way through to the end of Saturday oh night. God. So that money... It's like that a 48-hour shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the end of that Saturday, I'd definitely go to the pub till late, till about 2 or 3. Weekends were quite excessive. But that money that Beth made from selling the bread on the high street, that was our wages, you know, that would pay us and we'd try and do that once a week, you know, and everything was trying to stay afloat. And then this opportunity came to open a small bar around the corner that had an amazing reputation. It was brilliant. It was really busy and buzzy. It was a great drinking place and a good, fun bar. And the owners were leaving and the brewery that owned it approached us and said, would we like to have a little look at it? And we decided to do it. And we decided to do it with business partners to take on this bar space and do small little tasting things of food that were quite simple, that some of the prep work would be done at the Hand of Flowers and we'd take it down the road and it would be small portions of chips and just lots of little pots and ideas of potted salmon, just very simple bar food. But my focus was always on the Hand of Flowers. And at that point, I was just competing in the first Great British menu. So it would have been 2009. So we got to this point where I'm not in this new business. I'm running the Hand of Flowers and I'm dead. But the chefs are trying to create the food for it. And it's very, very simple, a very, very simple offering. But the business partners that we went into business with did not have the same work ethic as myself and Beth. And it wasn't... In some ways, they were looking at being carried. And it, a business can't work like that. You have to be 100% committed to it. You have to make those right decisions. You have to. And it didn't work. The energy levels weren't right. It caused resentment to how much work they were putting in that I, you know, we were doing. And it was operating because it was operating off the back of the success of The Hand of Flowers. And at that point, filming television and being in Great British Menu, those sort of things start making a big difference to business. But that business wasn't working because when we weren't there, it was being run with a lethargy, with a... with Yeah, not in a way you would run it. Exactly. That was a huge learning curve, probably one of the biggest for us because at that point it cost about 20 grand in 
failure, which is a lot of money. It's particularly as you're in the recession and it's particularly and it's as bad. you've been baking bread I know, it's hours huge. nonstop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's huge. So it costs a lot of money. I mean, in the grand scheme of things over years of turnover, that's not a huge amount. However, for a husband and wife team, a small failure, that's a huge amount. So that point of making that decision to close it rather than push on with it because it was with people that weren't necessarily had the same, they weren't bad people. They just didn't have the same work ethic. And it showed us that if you're going to go into business with people in the future and you're going to do joint ventures and build it, they have to have the same mindset. That learning curve was very, very steep. Did you feel like a failure after that business failed? Yes, because I couldn't give it 100%. It was one of those things as well about delegation. Now, we've built now hugely successful hospitality businesses on allowing people to grow professionally and personally. And over those 10 years since opening that to this, there's members of staff that have been with us from the beginning that have seen the journey. So they've now become senior management they take ownership of the business it's theirs what they create we all create it together but they they have a sense of ownership and belief and one of the biggest things that you know winning two mission stars is amazing there's so many different things i could look back and go oh this was incredible that was amazing but one of the biggest things that both me and beth are so proud of is that the staff that have stayed with us and been with us for so long and there are so many of them that have been with us over 10 years and people that are coming up to 10 years seven eight nine years you know people that just don't move because they have a sense of ownership we allow them to grow professionally and personally and that's really important that understanding of being able to delegate to be able to grow is huge so that sense of failure with this first bar because i couldn't delegate it properly and i couldn't understand not having ownership or having somebody else that has ownership of it but not owning it the same that I would you know all of those sort of things it did feel quite uncomfortable it was an uncomfortable space to be because it made me realize in retrospect I look back at it and there were huge learning curves about allowing an understanding of characters that you build around you and people that come with you on the journey is very very important so from a learning curve I learned so much from that small the other way that I look at it I talk about that 20 grand and you go at 20 grand is cost a huge then at that point feels like a lot of money however now I look at it and go, that 20 grand is nothing. That 20 grand is worth every single penny as learning curve. I love that. You go, the that, investment in it's an, learning. It's an investment in learning. It's an investment in learning. You've spent 20 grand going on a crash course in failure and you go, okay, so I've learned this. So you could sit back and go, I'm never doing that again. Or you can go, all right, now if I'm going to do that, I've got to do it like this, this and this to make it successful. You know, and now a second pub down the road with a mission star, a butchers a major london restaurant and a new manchester opening and an events team and a festival business and a, you go i've learned that 20 20- you're taking it yeah. easy now tom yeah. now in, in your 40s you just yeah. yeah 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 life is yeah you know, i hang out you know i have three or four days hanging on the river fishing like but talking about the people that you choose to work with beth yes clearly your wife who sounds absolutely amazing from the way that you talk about her is one of those key people, the yeah. key person. Yeah. What has it been like for your relationship? Amazing. Now, I couldn't recommend it enough working with your partner in terms of what you get out of it when you get to the other side. It starts off very, very difficult because the nature of the industry, 
best an artist. Okay, so she went to Liverpool, John Moores University, then she went to the Royal College of Art. Then she spent 10 years working alongside Sir Anthony Caro as one of his chief technicians. She's a bronze caster and carves in marble. And she's a phenomenal artist that's now, you know, she won the World Art Award for Sculpture two years ago in Dubai. She's a renowned artist of her own standing. But at that point, when we opened The Hand of Flowers, she said to make a business work. The point of The Hand of Flowers so that is Beth could make uncompromised art and I could cook. And that was it. It was never about making money or profit or just so that Beth could be an artist and I could be a chef. It's as simple as that. But that gets taken away. That dream, that vision is rapidly destroyed when you open a business because there is nothing fun about opening a restaurant. Like, it's fun for three days, the excitement and the energy of getting it ready and all those sort of things, and then you open the doors and then it starts becoming difficult. Then the VAT bill comes in and then the staff pay, you know, and then the staff don't turn up and then the pressures of running a business are massive. So if you were running the business as a head chef and a restaurant manager... That's under pressure, okay? And then you have conversations where you have to work together and you also have conversations where you battle each other. But then if that husband and wife thing is brought into being restaurant manager, head chef, it suddenly becomes very difficult because how are you talking to each other in front of members of staff? Now, when we first opened, there was only a few people there, not many. Now, across board, there's about 260. But the original time in Land of Flowers, there was about three. So as it grows, that strain on the relationship is huge and it's very very difficult to find that balance between who you are as a couple and who you are as business partners who you are as your supposed roles and jobs within that business and they're all very very difficult things to try and find and settle with but when you work together at it you become incredibly strong because you come through adversity it's not i mean is it adversity it's just a life journey that then you you recognize and you grow and we're very lucky because you now have gone all that hard work energy effort is now the other side i mean it's 14 15 years later but beth has a beautiful big studio at home where she's making her own work that is uncompromised beth still is in the business beth runs the account and make sure that the money's fine and that people are getting sorted and that everyone's all right and has an, a vision of, of how she wants the business to be, how she wants it to feel. So she's very much in it because she loves it very much, but she is removed from it, the day-to-day running of it, the understanding of who writing wrote, like it doesn't, Beth has no interest in that. She makes art, she is an artist. So she's still in it, but she's got a great studio. She makes art with material that she wants to make. She has a space where she wants to be. But it's been very difficult to get to that point. But now we're at that point, you'd never change anything. We're so lucky. We haven't had an argument for five or six years. Like, it's, we're now in a position where it's different. It does coincide a little bit with... I haven't drunk for five or six years. So you go, okay. And you've got a young son now, haven't you? We have got a young son. Yeah, 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 we do. I mean, we occasionally have a little bit of an argument about... AC only because like I say yes to stuff and that Beth said no to you know like standard normal parenting but not arguing we haven't we don't we don't argue now we're in a point where we're very comfortable and very happy where we are but it's been it's been a real hard push to get yeah I guess you've been forced to communicate like that's that's what it's done but talking about the fact that not having an argument coincides with not having had a drink 
brings us back to where we started and actually onto your third failure, which, as you put it, failure at drinking or just being very good at drinking, which has led to the issue of failing to live in the moment, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, 100%. How much was Beth a part of you giving up drink? I mean, how tough did it get? Would you have labelled yourself as an addict? Yes, yeah, 100%. But uh, controlled. So I wouldn't drink throughout the day. It would always be in the evening as soon as service had finished. Work was profession. So when I walked through the door at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning, I wouldn't drink until service had finished. So it doesn't give you long to drink. However, from 11 o'clock through till 6 or 7 in the morning, you've still got plenty. In my head, that's plenty of time. The only thing you were going to miss out on is sleep. <laughs> so drink had become hugely excessive and massive in my life and it was always about volume I had no interest really in wine like even as a chef that loves food wine I, I, I like the process of it I like the fact that people create and make I love it I think it's amazing but that's why I have a lot of respect for brewers as well because brewers are often not seen in the same light as great winemakers and I, I know the winemaker is a little different because they are taking the vines and it's affected by it but brew they still have the same passion and soul and they're still creating something that is an organic base root of something that can be manipulated and grown it's not a chemical process it's just added together like it's something that is alive and something that moves can i just say i love the way that you are taking a question about alcoholism and being really lovely to the people who create booze. I just yeah. think that's just like the loveliest. <laughs> You're just such a nice man. <laughs> I mean, they, they have a passion for something that they do. What that does, my choice of what they do to me and my psychology, my body, my mindset isn't their fault. There's hundreds of thousands of millions of people around the world that can just enjoy a glass of wine or a single pint of beer and enjoy it for what it is. I can't because I'm not that person. But I do love their passion for how they make it. They're in the food and drink business. I'm in that industry. They're the same. They make things the same as people who make cheese or the same, you know, bakers. You know, there's a passion and a soul and they're taking something from the earth and they're creating something and they're making it. And what that does to your mindset after you've drunk it isn't their fault. That's there to make you you enjoy it. There's Mm. plenty of people that can just have a glass of wine. I can't. What they do, that creativity, that passion, is something that is, I mean, it's amazing. It's something to get it. But the wine itself was something, I wasn't really interested in the flavour profiles. It wasn't, it wasn't really something that you could do excessively. I mean, you can, but for me, it was always about volume and volume of pints of beer or spirits, hard, something that's really big, strong, kicks, powerful, those sort of things, that instant almost like drug taking gratification i love it i loved it i love i love it now i know i would love it now i mean i got to a point where i stopped drinking i i probably stopped drinking it was about a year maybe 18 months into not drinking and it was a saturday evening at the hand of flowers and i just finished it was about 9 30 actually and there was a few tables left to come but i text beth and said listen do you want to go for a quick drink in town into marlow she was like yeah yeah yeah. what great idea like so i picked her up and we just bobbed into town and best still drinks now but not massively but she'll have a really nice glass of red or a really lovely gin and tonic or whatever like it's no but we went into a bar and she had a glass of wine or a gin and tonic or something and there was a non-alcoholic beer there and I thought do you know what maybe I'll have a bottle of that and I had one 
the moment that I had it, the mindset of what it was, the psychology of what it is, the smell, the flavour, the fizz, the cold, the way that it hits your throat, everything about it. I did eight of them in 20 minutes. It was uncontrollable, non-alcoholic beer. I was getting, I was getting excessive on non and that was it. From that, I was just like, that is ridiculous. That is just not right. Now, I'm quite lucky. I've got a, gr- a great friend who is freely talks about his issues with alcohol and drugs and lives nearby with Russell Brand. So Russell, is, uh, he lives near us and he's, and he's, and he's a, 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 such a lovely man and a great friend and is such a huge supporter of what we do and me, and me of Russell. And we, we were talking about it and the issues with it. And when I was telling him this story, he, he said, you know, normal people just don't do that. <laughs> and that was the point where I thought, you know, if, if Russell is telling me that, it, you know, I'm going, yeah, yeah, okay, there is an issue here. Now, like, there really is. There is a thing that I just go, I can't. So I have to, you have to move yourself away from it. But what I recognise that, and where it is a failure in a huge rate. Now, I was very good at drinking. Like, if there was an Olympics for drinking, I would be in it. I would be Great Britain's gold medalist. I would be like Sir Steve Redgrave of drinking. But when it came to now, the failure in it, and, and I, don't, I don't, I miss it. I miss that guy. I miss that party. I miss that edge. I miss that not caring about anything else because it's just about me in that moment. And that I don't have anymore. So living in the moment now, I'm always, I always feel that I'm supposed to be somewhere else. I always feel that time sat doing nothing, watching TV or something, there's, I can be achieving something else. Why am I here? I've got three restaurants, four restaurants going on. I've got, surely I should be, there's something else I should be doing. What email should I be sending? What should I, relentlessly, that is always in my life. Even when you're exercising, sorry to interrupt, but is that? Yes and no. Some, yes. Yesterday, I went to the gym for the first time in a, in a while, actually, because I've opened a restaurant in Manchester and I'm there all the time. And I had an opportunity to go to the gym and I couldn't. Normally, I would set myself two hours aside to be in the gym. I was in and out in 40 minutes because I, wasn't, I couldn't switch off from being other things. Normally, I can go, OK, my day is structured. I've got two hours here and I can switch off for two hours and I can zone into being with the personal trainer and then I view it as a job as well that I do. It's my job to be fitter, stronger, healthier for my son. Like, that's it. So you go, right, so this is, so it becomes a job. That's why I'm doing it. But then I can switch off from everything else because I'm still focusing on that being the job in hand. Yesterday wasn't, I, do, I wasn't with the personal trainer. I was on my own and I, it, my mind doesn't stop about everything else. There's so many other things that I've got. There's so many other things all the time. When you have... That many businesses, it sounds it's great and it's brilliant. I love having so many opportunities that are presented. I'm so lucky. But there's always something somewhere going wrong somewhere in one of them that something needs resolving or problem solving or talking to or a member of staff needs an arm around them or, a, you know, all of those. Sort of, there's always something. So that is always in my head. Now, with alcohol, when I was drinking, none of that occurred. Not a single bit of it mattered because... I was drinking and I drink for me. That moment, there it is. That's living in that moment right now. Life is amazing. I'm watching a band. I'm drinking beer. I'm doing whatever. Like I'm having dinner. I'm doing like right there and then it's incredible. I've taken the alcohol out of my life and I not for a single minute do I ever live in the moment. And it drives my wife absolutely mental. I find it very difficult to go, 
to be content right now. And I, and it's weird because I should be, because like everything's great. But then I think when you're telling yourself you should be content, that makes it so much harder as well. Like yeah. I, I would just ease up on yourself. And my personal perspective from a position of complete ignorance yeah. is that you're taking time to acclimatize. Like you managed to quit overnight more or less. Yeah. And so it's bound to take a bit of time for it all to settle. And actually the worst thing you could do is beat yourself up about the fact that you're not doing it. But do you get support? Are you, do you follow a 12 step program or, or you've just, you're just on your own? Yeah. Just on my own. I like, yeah, like, yeah, no 12 steps. No. I mean, I've talked about that with Russell funnily enough, but it's not, it's not for me. I like doing it on my own. I like finding my own way. I like, yes, guidance is sometimes quite good or somebody who's been through the experience of pointing something out and showing you, oh, well, I've done it like this. I like to listen. I, I've always found my own way to finding to the point where I'm at now. You know, I've done, we've done all right finding my own way and I can find my own way here. But I do recognise now that this is another issue that I have in my life is not living in the moment. But do you know what? It's a way less worrying one than drinking 20 cans of Stella. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's actually, I can find... And there's little moments, and so much of it actually come through my son. There's little moments. And I need to spend more time with him. I recognise that. But at the same point, you're building businesses and showing him... A father-son relationship is something that I never had. I've got no experience of what that should be. And we're finding that out as we go along. We're on this journey together. We're finding our father-son relationship as we build it together. And it's great. It's an amazing journey. And there are little moments that I go, right now, it's amazing. So we went to see The Lion King a week or so ago. Now, I didn't really watch The Lion King. I didn't see what was going on on the stage. I didn't, I, I mean, I did, you know, this bit, but I spent most of it watching him watch it. And that's the point that you go, actually, this is amazing. This is great. You know, I live in the moment then, and I'm living in the moment through him and what he does, but I don't live in the moment through, I haven't got a point where I go, right now, this interview, I go, no, this is great. This is great. This is great. But I know that I've got this in my head. I'm going, oh, yeah, I've got a deal that, of something that's come through on an email that I've got to respond. There's always something. There's always something. My next challenge will be finding the balance in where I can go, OK, this is I'm in a much better space, but I'm not quite there yet. Oh, God, that made me well up. Um, um, I'm going to let you go because you've got a thousand and one things to do. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not going to be like the millionth person to say, you should try meditation. I refuse to be that person. <laughs> do you know what? My wife sent me once for acupuncture because she, she swears by it and loves it. And, I, I and that made a huge difference to her for lots of different things for medical reasons and all sorts of different stuff. So I agreed to go in and I went and it works, right? And it works. And I came away from it three hours after I had had it. I was in a completely, slightly zoned out, relaxed space. And I hated it. I couldn't bear it because I had other stuff to do. I had things to get on with and my brain couldn't switch in to dealing with the other stuff. So that even, like, that even made me go, well, I know it works. And I was really relaxed and I hated every minute of it because I had other things to do. So it's it, 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 it fascinating. A dear friend of mine identified herself as a chaos addict, as someone who needed that to be motivated and driven, like, and, and actually weirdly sort of fed off chaos. Yeah. I finished service in Manchester at 11 o'clock two nights ago and I drove 
back from Manchester to Manoigle, was in home by 2.30ish, you know, cup of tea, said hello to the dogs, in bed by three, up again at 6.30 when little man comes in. And it's like, I, for me, it's, that's, that's exciting. I'm living a life. I'm living a life. I'm doing stuff. I wish I could enjoy it more but I am loving every minute of living a life. Does that kind of make sense? It makes total sense. And you're living the life, I guess, that, as you so eloquently said, your dad didn't live. Yeah. Like, you're learning how to be a dad and you're alive. Yeah, yes, yes. That is very true. That is very true. You know, we all have to take responsibility for what we do and what we put in our bodies and what we decide to do and how we get there. And at the end of the day, it does come down to what you want out of life. I suppose it comes back to my mum and the first thing she said, which is why I was never worried about the education, which I was never worried about. And my mum never pushed me for doing exams or doing it because I think she probably always knew. And she always said to me, you'll always get out of life what you put into it. You know, if you give 100%, it will give it back. And she said, and whatever you do, just make sure you do it to the best that you can. And so I always question, is that the best I can do it? And that's how we've got to win in two mission stars at the Hand of Flowers. That's how we've got to push in the other business. Because is that the best you can do it? No, that isn't the best we can do it. We can do it better. Let's do it better tomorrow. Let's do it better now. Let's do it better. Just question yourself all the time. Is, is that the best you can do it? And I put that into everything that I do in life. Everything that I do. Tom Carriage. You've put everything into this interview. It's the best possible how to fail interview you could have given. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Thank you ever so much for having me. It was a lovely way to start the day. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.